Well, good morning. Whoa, I'm hearing my voice reverberating off of the walls here. So good to see you this morning as um, we continue our study in the book of Esther, which has been an incredible journey so far. We're just past the halfway point. And for those of you that are just joining us uh, live or online, I'll give you uh, just a a brief recap. The book of Esther is a, a unique book amongst all the books in the Bible. For this one reason, it's the only book of the 66 books in the entire Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. In fact, not only is God's name not mentioned, there's no mention of angels, there's no mention of spirits, of demons, there's no mention of heaven or hell or the Old Testament covenants. Um, In many ways, people have questioned over the centuries, why is it even in the Bible? Well, even though God's name is not mentioned in this particular book, his fingerprints are everywhere. And I think uh, for those of you who have been tracking with us over the last several weeks, you have seen it, and you will continue to see God's providence working behind the scenes, orchestrating events um, to bring about his purposes. And we said that at the start that the overarching theme or the big idea for our study in the book of Esther is that God is in control and that he will accomplish amazing things through those who dare to risk it all. And Esther is the epitome of that. As we saw last week and in previous weeks, it's just incredible to see how God is using this young woman. And so before we go any further, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Uh, Thank you that we can worship you that we can lift our voices in song to you. And Lord, that we can listen to your word and allow your Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts with it, to reveal to us things too wonderful for us. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you would again be our teacher and our guide as we open up your word. Um, Lord, we don't want to merely learn more stuff Father, would you help us to apply the things that we learned this morning to our lives that we might be more like your son. And we pray this in his name, amen. They say that uh, pride comes before a fall. The actual quotation comes from Proverbs chapter 16, uh, verse 18, um, and, it, and it reads like this. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. When it comes to Haman, the king's right-hand man, uh, there is no truer saying. And I think you're going to see that this morning. This morning, what we're going to see is simply this. What goes around comes around. You've probably heard that saying before, too. But in chapter 6, we're going to begin to see the downfall of Haman. And as we do, we're once again going to see God's providential hand in the circumstances, in the events of our story. In fact, as we go along, you're going to hear me say a few times, uh, it, it just happened to occur, or it just so happens. There's going to be a lot of it just so happens this morning. 
So last week, as we looked at chapter 5, uh, we saw that Mordecai's refusal uh, to pay homage to Haman continued to eat at him big time. It bothered him. Haman had just returned from dinner with the king and the queen alone, and he calls his wife and his friends together, and he proceeds to brag about the splendor of his riches. He brags about the number of sons that he has. He, he brags about his position in the kingdom and all of his promotions. He even bragged about going to dinner with the king and queen again the following day. Yet, despite all of this, Haman says this, yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So all of the, the success that he has experienced, he counts but nothing because there's this one solitary Jew that keeps getting his goat that keeps rubbing him the wrong way, that, that continues to be the fly in the ointment or the thorn in his flesh, if you would. So what happens? His wife and his friends encourage him to build a gallows, and in the morning, go to the king and, and, and ask him to have Mordecai impaled on it. And the chapter simply ends, this idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. So no doubt, that night, Haman slept like a baby. Because he knows the plan. He, yeah, I love it. I love it. Build the gallows. So while he's sleeping, the gallows are being built. And while he's sleeping, someone else in Susa isn't. And that's the king. The king cannot sleep that night. And let me tell you, a lot of things can happen in, a, in the matter of a few, a few short hours. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Esther chapter 6 now. We're going to be reading a few verses at a time, and then I'll be sharing some commentary on it, and then we're going to look at uh, some takeaways. So Esther chapter 6, starting in verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigtha and Teresh and two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So I love how this first verse starts out on that night, on that night. Of all nights, it just so happened that the king couldn't sleep. Now, most of us have had sleepless nights, right? Uh, in my case, it's, it's usually because I cannot quiet my mind. <laughs> my mind is racing. I'm thinking about all sorts of things. Probably shouldn't have read that email at 11 o'clock at night. You know, you're just, your mind just goes like that. And, and you have a hard time sleeping. I, I imagine the king kind of replayed the events of the day in his mind. And when you stop to think about it, they're quite significant. You know, he, he might have been thinking something like this. Why did Esther risk her life to come to me for a meal? 
And if she had something really important to ask me, why didn't she ask me then? Or at least at dinner when we had the opportunity, to, and, I, and I gave her another opportunity to tell me, and she said, no, if it please the king, let's have another meal tomorrow night, and then I'll tell you. See, that would have drove me crazy. I'm thinking, all right, what is she thinking? What's going on? What is so important that we have to jump through all of these hoops? It certainly would have kept me awake, but whatever it was that kept the king awake, I can tell you this. It was a case of divine insomnia. God had his hand on this. The timing of it is incredible. So the king did what what many of us do when we can't go to sleep. Now, I know some of you will watch TV, but I think probably many of you will read a book. Read until you fall asleep. Um, And that's exactly what the king does, or more accurately, he has one read to him. He had that luxury. And of all the books in the entire library of Susa that he could have read from, He chooses chooses the Chronicles, the book of memorable deeds. This is is incredible. And not only did they choose the book of memorable deeds, they also opened up the book and turned to the section where it talks about Mordecai. It talks about what Mordecai did back in chapter 2. Now, if you weren't here for that, it was very simple. Mordecai's sitting at the king's gate, and he overhears a plot to kill the king. So Mordecai tells Esther, who then tells the king, they investigate it, they find it to be true, and they execute the two people that were plotting against the king. And we read there in chapter 2 that that was recorded in the book of memorable deeds, in the Chronicles. And I, and I remember telling you, remember, hold on to that, because we're going to come back to that, because at that point, nothing happens for Mordecai. He's not, re- he's not rewarded, he's not patted on the back, he's not even given a thank you, but it was recorded. And now we see why that act is so important as we look here at chapter 6. So let's continue reading in verse 3. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So here you have situation, the book's been read, the king's mind is now starting to go, and after hearing what Mordecai did for him, the king learns that nothing has been done for Mordecai. So the king's thinking something ought to be done for Mordecai. And as he's thinking about it, he realizes that he needs somebody to run point on this. He needs somebody to make sure that it actually happens. So he asks those attending him, who is in the court? And it just so happens that Haman is there. Look at verse 5. It says, And the king's young men told him, 
Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Hmm. This is another one of those amazing coincidences in this book. Just as the king inquires who it is that's in the court, it just so happens that Haman is there. Haman, of course, wants to be first on the docket. He wants to get the king's attention right off the bat. He cannot rest until Mordecai is dead. He wants to persuade the king to give the kill order and have Mordecai impaled on the gallows that he built overnight, mind you. That's, that's how anxious he is, how, how much he wants to get to the king as soon as possible and have this deed done. But before Haman has a chance to say anything, the king asks, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman is clueless. He's absolutely clueless. All he can think about is how great he is. He is so full of himself, he can't imagine the king would be referring to anybody other than him. Whom would the king want to delight more than me? Is what he was thinking. Oh, the pride and the arrogance. So, thinking, king must be talking about me, he lays it all out on the line. He doesn't hold anything back. He's thinking, okay, if the king's going to honor me, I want to be honored like this. He wants to be treated like the king. Look at verse 7. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." If there was ever a perfect illustration for pride coming before the fall, this is it. This is it. You couldn't have scripted a better story here. What a setup. Then in verse 10, we read, Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Haman just took a punch to the gut. The air in his balloon was not just deflated. It was popped. I mean, everything that, that he thought was coming his way is now going to Mordecai. And what's worse is, 
I got to be the guy to dress them. I got to be the guy to lead them through the city square. I've got to be the guy that shouts out, this is what the king wants to do for those he wants to honor. Can you imagine what he must have felt like? Oh, I wish I could have been there to see the look on his face as, as his glee just melts away. You see, what goes around comes around. The evil that he was intending for Mordecai, the, the plotting and the scheming and everything else, suddenly it's being turned on its head. And, and next week, we come to the climax. Don't miss it. Pastor Ryan's going to be speaking on chapter 7. Um, you're, you're definitely going to want to be here for that. But I would have given anything to be there to see the look on his face. So look at with, uh, verse 11 with me. It says, So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I can't imagine he did that with much enthusiasm. <laughs> but he did it because he was commanded to do it. Talk about eating humble pie. How humiliating this must have been. How degrading to him. And you can just, you can just picture him, you know, walking along the horse, holding the reins, you know, all the people are there cheering. And he's got... He's got to point to Mordecai. This is the man the king wants to honor, not me. So it's no wonder we read what follows in verse 12. It says, Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened, and then his wise men and his wife Zeres said to him, If Mordecai, before you have begun to fall, is of Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And before I talk about that, I just love the contrast that we're given in verse 12. You see it there. It says, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. What you see here is a contrasting character. Mordecai, after being honored in this amazing way, he doesn't allow it to go to his head, which would have been very easy to do. It would have been very easy for him to gloat over Haman and to say, see? He could have rubbed it in. He didn't. What does it say? It says, very simply, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. What does that mean? He went back to work. He went back to the king's gate where he had been repeatedly. We have read it repeatedly. He went back to his job. He did not allow this to get to his head. And he didn't become a wicked, evil person like Haman by rubbing it in his face. But in contrast to that, we see what does Haman do? Haman hurries home. And he's in mourning. And he has covered his head. What a difference between Mordecai and Haman. And once he's at home, 
Haman then tells his wife and tells his advisors, friends, everything that happened to them. Now, you have to keep in mind, he already told them Mordecai was a Jew. The day before, he says that, that he's a, a Jew. So they, they knew that. And what did they tell him a day earlier? Build a gallows and hang him high. Build a gallows and impale him. Go to the king and ask the king to do this thing for you. That was their response. How do they respond now? <laughs> they bailed on him. They see the handwriting on the wall and they begin to distance themselves from him. And they conclude, these are my words, but my paraphrase, if he's a Jew, you're a goner. You're, you're doomed, buddy. This is not good. Uh, but enjoy your dinner with the king and the queen tonight. That's kind of what I think they're saying. And then we simply read verse 14. It says, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Don't you just love how this chapter ends? And there's a sense of foreboding. It's like there's something in those words. And as they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast. It's like you know something's coming. And we're left hanging here until next week. Now next week, we get to the climax of the story, but it's not the end of the book of Esther. There's still a lot of good stuff that's gonna follow. But this morning, this is where we're gonna end. But before we conclude, I wanna share with you some lessons from this. There are many lessons from chapter six, but I wanna highlight just uh, three lessons um, from this text. First of all, God neither slumbers or sleeps. Seems like a very simple phrase, but we need, to, we need to know that this is true in the depths of our heart. Sometimes we may feel like God doesn't see or God doesn't care what we're going through, what we're facing. We may be suffering heartache. We may be suffering in, in great pain, and we can wonder, God, where are you in the midst of my pain and my suffering? We may feel that we're in a situation where there's no way out. We may feel like life is spinning out of control and all seems lost, but it's not. When Haman erected the gallows, all seemed lost for Mordecai. All seemed lost for the Jewish people. But it wasn't. What seems lost in your life today? What feels like it's, it's too late, it's no use? Or maybe there's an area in your life where you wonder why hasn't God shown up? What is he doing, taking a vacation on my life? Perhaps you have family members who don't know Christ and you look at them and you hear the way that they talk and you can't even get a word in edgewise and you think their heart is so hard, even God can't get through to them. Maybe your children are not pursuing Christ the way that you feel that they should be pursuing Christ. 
Maybe you've made some terrible choices and you, you feel that there's no hope for your health moving forward. There's no hope maybe for your marriage. There's no hope for your future. Maybe you're in debt up to your eyeballs and you see no way out. Maybe you're suffering from an incurable disease or maybe you or somebody you love is suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's. Maybe you're wondering, where is God in the midst of COVID? I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 121. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Esther helps give us a proper perspective on life. But this story that is so wonderful really points us to an even more wonderful story, doesn't it? It points us to the story of Jesus. You see, when the Romans lifted up Jesus on the cross, all seemed lost then, too. We can all imagine what it must have felt like to be one of Jesus' disciples. Having put your faith and your trust in him, having believed that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. To see him arrested, flogged, beaten, and crucified, dead, and buried. To then go into hiding, thinking you're next. See, all hope seemed lost then, too. But it wasn't. It wasn't because Sunday's coming, right? Three days later, Jesus came forth out of the tomb. He rose from the dead, and he broke the power of sin and death. God does not sleep on the job. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. He's not on vacation. He's not disinterested. He is very much aware of what's going on in our lives and in our world. And God is in control. Esther knew this. Mordecai knew this. Mordecai did not try to assert himself in the situation with Haman. He reports once to Esther what he heard. Esther goes to the king. The king takes action. Mordecai isn't defending himself. He's allowing God to defend him. And this 
this just leads me to think that when we think about the sovereignty of God, we've got to understand God notices even when nobody else does. He sees all, he knows all, he remembers all, and he will repay and he will reward, which leads me to my second lesson. And that is, is that God honors the righteous. Proverbs 21, 21 says, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. And in Psalm 37, the psalmist writes, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them, and he delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Mordecai's deed was recorded in the book of memorable deeds. God, too, has a book of remembrance. Did you know that? It's found in the book of Malachi. And in the book of Malachi, there is a group of people who basically diss God, and their argument is simple. Why should we live righteous lives when we look around and we see the wicked having a, a field day. They don't get punished. They, they're, 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 they're rewarded for their evil. So why should we live righteous lives? Well, fortunately, there was a, still a group of godly people who spoke up. And in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, listen to these words. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possessions, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. So God has a book of remembrance where he records the righteous deeds of his people. I wonder what's written in it about us. I wonder what's written in it about me. Don't lose heart. God honors and rewards the righteous. My last lesson I wanted to share is, is really the antithesis of that second one, and that is that God humbles the proud. From the book of Proverbs in Psalms, we read these verses. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. They dig a deep pit to trap others, 
then fall into it themselves. The trouble they make for others backfires on them. The violence they plan falls on their own heads. How true was that for Haman? And then, of course, the verse that we started with this morning. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This is what I meant when I said what goes around comes around. Another way of saying it is we reap what we sow. Paul tells us in Galatians, if we, if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap destruction. But if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. It's not always easy to see pride in ourselves. We have to be humble enough to ask other people, do you see it in me? And it oftentimes is not a pretty picture. Scripture tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Have you received God's grace? Have you humbly repented of your sins and trusted solely in Christ to save you from your sins? If not, I, I, I don't want to candy coat this. If not, you are headed to a worse fate than the gallows. But you don't have to die in your sins. That's the beauty of the story of Christ that Esther points to. That God, though he is holy and will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, also has loved us with an everlasting love. And he doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That we should all live and enjoy him for all of eternity. But the Bible makes it clear that we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory and that the wages of our sin is death. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that we can do to save ourselves. We needed a Savior. And his name was Jesus. And God sent Jesus to live the life that only he could live, a perfect, sinless life. And the Bible says that he took the sins of the world, your sins and my sins, upon himself and allowed himself to be crucified on that cross so that he could bear the penalty, the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. And in an amazing transaction, God took our sins, placed them on Jesus, and God took Jesus' righteousness and he robed us in it. That's the beauty of the gospel. And the fact that Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead doesn't mean that everybody's going to heaven because it requires an act of faith on our part. We have to be willing to confess that Jesus is Lord. We have to be willing to bend our knee to him and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God, that you loved me, that you came to earth to die for me so that I could be forgiven, so that I could have eternal life. 
And I receive you into my life as my Lord and my Savior. Be my God. See, until a person takes that step, they merely know a lot of stuff about God and about Jesus and what he did. We don't have to die in our sins. If you're here this morning, if you're watching online and you have not yet repented of your sins, that means turn from your sin and turn to Jesus to save you from your sins, then I encourage you to do that this morning. When we close in prayer, take, take a few moments to just cry out to God and ask him to save you. Surrender your life to him this morning. If you're here or watching a line and, and, and you know Christ, then let me just encourage you. Your future is secure. You're heaven bound. This world is not your home. One day, God will remove every tear, every sorrow. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering. No more need to ask questions like, God, where are you? Because we'll know where he is because we'll be with him. We don't need to fear or worry about things that are out of our control because God is working all things out according to the counsel of his good will. We simply need to trust him and his providential care for our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this tiny little book that has so much to teach us. Father, I thank you for Esther, for Mordecai. I thank you for your leading in their lives and how this story points to a greater story, the story of the cross the story of your great love for us. Lord, it is my prayer that even now as we pray that if there's anyone who hears my voice and has come to the realization that they do not have a saving relationship with you, Father, I pray right now that they would open up their heart to you. They would invite you in. They would surrender to your lordship, that you would be their savior. Forgive them, Lord God. Give them the gift of eternal life. And Father, use us all for the furtherance of your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.